Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 2023 episode of Astrochem Coffee, brought to you by Astrochemistry Discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire. This month I sat down with, virtually and in person, two fantastic astrochemists, Professor Jenny Bergner of UC Berkeley and Professor Tom Miller of Queen's University Belfast, to pick their brains about a variety of different topics. We'll also be taking a look, as usual, at a selection of papers that came out this month in the literature. We'll take a look back at the history of H3 Plus this time. And finally, we'll let you know about some more job opportunities and a slew of upcoming conferences that have found their way to the chalkboard. But first, let me tell you that today's Cup of Joe is a Starbucks holiday roast for 2023. The box says it should have notes of sweet maple and herbs, but I'm not even getting a hint of rosemary or basil, so I'm not exactly sure what they're on about. This month, I was lucky enough to be able to sit down with Professor Jenny Bergner of UC Berkeley when she was visiting MIT to give a seminar in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences. We chatted about a a whole bunch of different things from how she got involved in astrochemistry uh, to the variety of different topics that she and her group are now working on. I hope you enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Jenny Bergner. So now uh, finishing up your first year as an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, right? Correct. In the chemistry department. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I remember you did your undergraduate at the University of Virginia, right? right. And you were a chemistry major there. Mm -hmm. But did you start off wanting to do astrochemistry? Did you even know what astrochemistry was before you started undergrad? No, I learned about astrochemistry in my senior year of undergrad. Um, I saw Eric Herbst give a talk, um, sort of internal to our department. And it kind of blew my mind because I felt like I had just spent three and a half years learning chemistry and then it broke all of the rules. (laughs) So I was like, I must learn more about this. Um, So I got connected to Eric through that. Uh Um, I met Karen Overk, who is at uh, University of Virginia at the time. Um, And So your senior year was the year that Karen was at UVA. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, So yeah, sort of just, I guess fortune that um, we had two astrochemists at UVA, <laughs> and I happened to discover it, and yeah. So did you, what, what did you do for undergraduate research then? Because you weren't doing astrochemistry. That's right, yeah. I worked in environmental engineering, so Wait, I basically um, looked at how pharmaceuticals get taken up into sand within, like, riverbeds. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so, like, the idea is that... Like, people are dumping their excess pills down the toilet or something to dispose of them, and they end up in wastewater runoff? I don't know if it's pill dumping, but just, like, through, like, human processing. Oh, no. Um, stuff ends up in wastewater. Okay. Yeah. You want to understand, like, how to get it out of the wastewater or, like, how it will sort of naturally filter out. And it really just, like, absorbs into the silt and the sand at the bottom of, like, rivers. Yeah, supposedly. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool, cool. So was that experimental work or computational or what? Um, It was experimental. So I spent probably a solid year of my undergrad career um, measuring out very precise doses of sand in a balance. Oh, my God. And, (laughs) you know, still loved research after that. 
Wait, so, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested now. Okay, so, so you measured our precise doses of 10, and then you dosed them with actual drugs or, or proxies? or Yeah, like actual drugs dissolved okay. in water, and then we would look at, over time, sort of how much of it got removed from the solution. Okay, yeah. using spectroscopy or mass spec? It or was, uh, chromatography? I LCMS, yeah. LC okay, that's cool. Okay, so... You decided, screw all of that sorts of stuff. I want to look at stuff in space. Yes, right? I did. And then ended up going to Harvard. That's right, right? yeah. In chemistry again. In chemistry. Yes? Okay. Mm -hmm. So I did take a gap year because I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't know whether sort of physical chemistry or I was still interested in biochemistry. So I did a year at the NIH, actually. No kidding. And I worked with... In, in DC? Yeah. Okay. Um, I worked with mice, which... Informed me that I do not want to do biochemistry, <laughs> but I had a great year anyways. Um, and then, yeah, looked mainly at like physical chemistry programs for grad school, and ended up astrochemistry was the one. So <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, so you went to Harvard. You immediately started working with Karin, mm -hmm. right? So, so what did you do there in the laboratory? But then you also now do observations. So that's true. How did that happen? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I started out really interested in the lab work, um, but maybe this has happened to you before. Does your instrument ever break, or are there ever times that you can't do experiments? Can, 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 look at it the other way, right? What are, <laughs> what are the times when the instrument actually works? That's much yeah, rarer. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess I must have had a little free time on my hands, and Karin gave me some Irm 30 meter data to play around with. Okay. Um, and Toward what source? For what purpose? Originally, I think we were trying to find deuterated molecules towards some protostars. Okay. But I remember it was, there were no detections, but I didn't know what I was looking for at the time. So it was a lot of noise that I was like <laughs> finding peaks in. <laughs> yep, yep. And then seeing um, my attempts there, I think Karin gave me some actual, or some data with actual detections in it. Ah. Um, looking for organics in like a large sample of protostars. Okay. okay. So, so yeah, I mean, it was just, I think, really exciting that like this is what's actually out there. Um, and yeah, a really nice compliment to like the experimental way that we think of things. But it took me a long time before I felt comfortable at all doing observations. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I, one of the things that I really like, especially as an experimentalist, about the observations is that in astronomy, we're willing to publish non-detections, right? Null results, mm -hmm. which because they're really informative, right? So you can look at the noise and get something useful out of it. And nobody ever lets us publish those from laboratory data. And it's really frustrating. That's a good point. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> hmm. So, okay. So you started working on complex organics, right? But these days, you, you, I, I see phosphorus in everything that you do, right? So <laughs> when did the phosphorus thing start? Um, so it was actually from that first data set. Um, we had 16 protostars at the Iron 30 meter and... Um, I just happened to be part of a conversation in my lab where people were talking about looking for phosphorus molecules, and I didn't really know they were interesting at the time, but I had spent a lot of time looking through this 30-meter data and like trying to assign lines, and I was like, oh, we have PN in one of these sources, <laughs> which was apparently a big deal. Yeah. Then became very excited about. Um, so that sort of kicked off like our kind of efforts to better understand like 
where we can look for phosphorus molecules and find them. Uh -huh. um, we haven't detected them towards very many sources, so it feels like a very kind of early area of astrochemistry in some ways. Um, so yeah, just trying to understand why we're seeing it where we're seeing it and now making some spatially resolved observations to look at the kind of um, spatially dependent processes a little bit better. Okay, okay. All right, so, so tracing back here though, so we went from uh, drugs in sand, <laughs> right, to ice in the lab, and then when the ice in the lab wasn't working, uh, deuterated molecules, then complex molecules in, in observations, then phosphorus molecules, but like a year ago now, you published a paper on Oumuamua <laughs> and hydrogen outgassing in, yeah. in comets. How did that start? Oh, that was fun. So when I was a postdoc at Chicago, um, there was another postdoc there at the time, Daryl Seligman, who spent like all of his PhD or much of his PhD working on Oumuamua and looking at kind of the dynamics and properties of Oumuamua. Um, and he got to Chicago and gave sort of an intro talk on Oumuamua. And I, I knew about it, of course, but I had always kind of thought it was like a separate field. Uh -huh. But then he started talking about these kind of crazy chemical scenarios that people had proposed, like nitrogen icebergs and hydrogen icebergs. And that got me really interested in like, how on earth is, is such a thing possible? Or like, is there a more like chemically plausible way that we could uh -huh. kind of fit all of these constraints. So Daryl and I just started talking um, and yeah, we had this idea about sort of processing of water, which we know should happen in bodies in the solar system and it all sort of went from there, but a little bit out of the wheelhouse. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think interstellar comets do have a lot to teach us about like how planet formation and planet formation chemistry plays out around other systems. So, um, yeah, I'm now much more interested than I used to be. Awesome. Okay, so you're starting up a new research program at Berkeley then, yeah. right? So you're building both a lab and an observational program? That's the hope, yeah. Okay, so, so what are the focuses in the two different areas there? Um, yeah, so in the lab, we are... Um, still focused on ice chemistry. So um, we're actually building one setup on campus that will be able to look at um, the yeah, sort of chemical processes in ices using kind of similar techniques to other setups. Um, so different radiation sources um, to understand the chemistry better. But we're also building a setup at Lawrence Berkeley Lab so that we can use the advanced light source synchrotron beamline to do some interesting like chemistry and also characterization using um, things like X-ray spectroscopy to understand um, more kind of depth-dependent properties of the ices than okay. we've been able to do before. So, so yeah, that should be a fun um, kind of new way of looking at ices. Okay, awesome. And you're also in the Ice Age JWST collaboration. Yeah, that's right. right. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing for that one? Um, so yeah, we are trying to basically be able to interpret the spectra of ices that we are seeing towards um, protoplanetary disks, and the same kind of machinery can also be used for protostar ice observations. But basically, ice absorption um, measurements with James Webb, they're really informative, but they're really complicated by the radiative transfer. So if we want to actually sort of back out any of the underlying properties of the ices that we're interested in, um, we, we have to model it really well. So we're building the radiative transfer framework to yeah, hopefully be able to extract some of this information. Cool, cool. 
All right, that's enough science. Okay. We're, so, so we're sitting in the uh, Life Alive Cafe in mm. Kendall Square. Yeah, in a Cambridge, favorite. Massachusetts. <laughs> yes. Um, so what's your favorite coffee order? What, what's, what's your go-to when you go to a cafe? Because this is a coffee podcast, after all. That's true, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of just like a drip coffee gal, you know? Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Cream, sugar, black? Black, yeah. Yes. So, Excellent. Yeah, my dad is a real kind of coffee purist. Uh -huh. And when I was growing up, it was really frowned upon for anyone to put anything in coffee. So. <laughs> at, at, absolutely correct. That's yeah. how it should be, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so light roast, dark roast, fruity flavors. Light uh, roast, fruity flavors, yeah. I'm oh, very third no. wave. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, all right, fine. We're off it. Give me give me that uh, that diner coffee that's been recycled in the pot for three days. That's that's where we're at. <laughs> really? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the best stuff in the world. Do you not like light roast? No. No. If it tastes fruity or acidic or floral or whatever that is, I just want to throw it out immediately. It's okay, terrifying well. and bad. Yeah. Well, I said, uh, uh, astute listeners will know, I, I think uh, two episodes ago, um, I let everybody know my favorite cup of coffee on the planet is from the Green Bank Cafeteria. And it is a Folgers dark roast made from a syrup concentrate. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Not wow! Well, uh, yeah, you now. You know. I do. I know. <laughs> so next birthday, I'm gonna have to track down. If you can find that, that would be great. I'm a little worried that it's like a New York City pizza crust problem, though, mm. because the water in Green Bank is incredibly mineral rich, like super mineral rich to the point where it's it's um, a little like orange or rusty sometimes. Mm. Perfectly safe to drink, but I, I'm worried that the minerals are also contributing to the taste. And then if I make it someplace with you know normal water. It's not gonna. I'm willing to give it a try. So the like very fancy coffee snobs will get distilled water and then put minerals back in what? with the right ratios and concentrations so oh, that no. they can perfectly extract their coffee. Oh no! I feel like if you did this with Folgers, <laughs> that would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna have to try it. Maybe we can get Yao Wan to do that. He said he's uh, roasting his own coffee. Okay. Now, right? Okay. Perfect. All right, last question. What is the favorite place that you have been for work, for a conference or observing or anything like that? Ooh, good question. Probably the most memorable is the Urim 30 meter telescope. Have you been? Ooh, I haven't. I've heard there's, what, a, a giant ham shank? There is, yeah. You, it's on the top of a ski slope. Okay. So you go up in like a ski lift no and then way. you get picked up by a snow tractor that takes you the rest of the way and okay. then you're just on the top of this mountain there's like country spanish meals cooked with like every meal um there is a giant ham leg always on call in the kitchen oh, i'm vegetarian but i still appreciate <laughs> there's like a giant meat cleaver by it too for slicing right mm -hmm. i've seen pictures I think. yeah yeah it's a very um unique experience oh. All right, well, we've got to propose for time on here right now. Yeah, worth Excellent. it. All right, well, we'll take up more of your time. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. Thanks, Brett. Bye. And now, a word from our sponsors. 
Hey there, coffee aficionados. Are you tired of your regular old coffee routine? Want to add a little buzz to your buzz? Introducing the Caffeine Constellation from the Harvard-Smithsonian CFA. That's the Center for Aromas. Yes, you heard that right. Caffeine Constellation isn't just a coffee. It's an astrological adventure in every cup. This isn't your grandmother's coffee blend, unless your grandma is from M31. Each pack of Caffeine Constellation comes with a unique mix of beans sourced from the darkest corners of the Milky Way. They say space is a vacuum, right? Well, these beans are vacuum-sealed for freshness that's simply out of this world. But wait, there's more. Every sip of Caffeine Constellation is like a cosmic journey with flavors so rich and bold, you might just see stars, or at least think you do. And for those who like their coffee with a bit of mystery, each pack comes with a horoscope prediction. Will your next cup lead to a day of adventure or a relaxing night under the stars? Only Caffeine Constellation knows. So why settle for earthly coffee when you can drink from the galaxy? Order a case and they'll even throw in a special, limited edition, space-themed mug. It's perfect for sipping while you ponder the mysteries of the universe, or, you know, just try to wake up in the morning. This is the grab and go, because sometimes you just can't do more than skim the menu. We've got quick overviews for you from a range of astrochemically relevant articles published in the last month. First up, synthesis of urea on the surface of interstellar water ice clusters, a quantum chemical study by Pereiro and Rimola on the archive to appear in Icarus. Urea, a prebiotic molecule that has been detected in a handful of interstellar sources and in meteoritic samples, has been suggested largely to form through the reaction of HNCO with formamide. In this work, the authors computationally examine other possible formation pathways that do not involve formamide, with many of them focusing on the simpler and more abundant ammonia, or NH2, and specifically on water ices, which they simulate using 18 water molecules. They explore the energetics of the various reactions and find, overall, that the presence of the water ice surface is crucial for efficient formation of urea. Number two, PDRs for all six, probing the photochemical evolution of PAHs in the Orion bar using machine learning techniques, by Pasquini et al. on the archive. This study applies unsupervised machine learning to the data from the JWST Early Release Science Program toward the Orion Bar PDR. They use K-means clustering to explore the spatial variation and spectral variability across several regions in the target and at multiple wavelengths. They then discuss those variations in the context of the variations in the underlying physical conditions, specifically highlighting the distinctions between the H2 region, atomic PDR zone, and the three dissociation fronts. They find substantial differentiation based on position within the PDR and suggest that clustering tools with machine learning may be an extremely useful tool for future analyses. Number three. Phosphorus-bearing molecules PO and PN at the edge of the galaxy, by Colomay et al. in Nature. The authors report detections of PO and PN in the outer galaxy in a dense cloud WB89-621, which is located about 22.6 kiloparsecs from the galactic center. 
The detection of phosphorus-bearing species in this region of the galaxy is intriguing because phosphorus is thought to be formed in massive stars and then ejected into the ISM primarily via type II supernovae. But supernovae are not present in the outer galaxy where these species have newly been found. The authors then suggest that phosphorus may also be formed in lower-mass AGB stars which are found in the outer galaxy. Number four, a pathway for collisional planetesimal growth in the ice-dominant regions of protoplanetary disks, by Yunerman et al. on the archive to appear in APJ. This paper explores the scenarios under which different types of particles, such as bare silicon grains and those coated in water, CO and CO2, fragment or grow upon collisions in protoplanetary disks. Bare grains are observed to undergo collisional fragmentation in the inner disk, whereas those coated in ices are less likely to be destroyed on collision. They suggest that these types of particles may be able to sustain runaway growth in water or CO2-rich ice regions, potentially then leading to substantial growth to sizes relevant for planetesimal formation. Number 5. Photoelectron Spectroscopic Study of 2-Naphthalnitrine and its Thermal Rearrangement to Cyanoindines by Saraswat et al. in PCCP. This article examines the rearrangement of 2-naphthalnitrine into 2 and 3-cyanoindine using photoion mass-selective threshold photoelectron spectroscopy, (sighs) with the goal of better understanding the chemistry of 2-cyanoindine in the ISM, which is currently poorly reproduced by models. 3-cyanoindine is absorbed to form under mild pyrolysis conditions of about 800 Kelvin from 2-naphthalnitrine, but harsher conditions of 1100 Kelvin are needed to observe the formation of the lower energy 2-cyanoindine isomer. Number 6. Rotational Spectroscopic Characterization of the D2CS System, an update from the Laboratory and Theory, by Inostroza Pino et al. on the archive to appear in Molecular Physics. This paper highlights the synergy between high-resolution rotational spectroscopy and quantum chemical calculations through an examination of both theoretical data and experimental measurements of D2CS and cis and trans DCSD. Using high-level quantum chemical calculations, the authors find agreement between their calculated rotational constants for these species and those they measured in the laboratory to an order of about 0.1%. The study offers both a guide for future quantum chemical approaches to guide laboratory experiments, as well as new highly accurate catalogs for interstellar searches for these species. Number 7. The effect of isotopic substitution on the excitation of CCS isotopologs in molecular clouds, by Paluet and Leek in Munras. CCS is a particularly useful molecule for studying interstellar isotopic fractionation, as its high abundance and strong transitions enable observations of a number of its isotopologs. Analyzing those observations to obtain accurate column densities, however, requires accurate collisional rate coefficients for all such isotopologs if the molecules are not in LTE, which they frequently are not. This paper presents fine and hyperfine resolved rate coefficients for collisions with helium in the 5 to 50 Kelvin temperature range and performs radiative transfer calculations to assess the effect on analyses. They find that isotopic substitution has little effect on the fine structure rate coefficients, but the lines that they do observe and analyze are indeed out of LTE, necessitating the use of these new collisional rate coefficients for accurate determinations of abundances. 
Number eight, elusive iron. Detection of the FEC radical in the envelope of IRC plus 10216 by Colomay and Zuri's in AppJ letters. The authors report the detection of this new species using the submillimeter telescope of the Arizona Radio Observatory. FEC is only the second iron-bearing species to be detected in the ISM following an earlier discovery of FECN in this same source. An analysis of the line profile suggests that the distribution of FEC is located in a shell peaking substantially closer to the AGB star than FECN, and the authors then suggest that FEC may be a precursor to FECN based on this evidence. Number 9. The first Ka band, 26.1 to 35 GHz, blind line survey toward Orion KL, by Lou et al. on the archive to appear in AppJ Supplements. This line survey, conducted with the Tianma 65-meter radio telescope, achieves a sensitivity of about 1 to 3 millikelvin in 1 kilometer per second channels across the range of the survey. And because of this high sensitivity, the authors identify nearly 600 spectral features and focus much of the analysis on the more than 250 radio recombination lines that they identify from hydrogen, helium, carbon, and carbon plus. They also assign the emission of 37 molecular species, including the first detection of CH3C3N in this source. And finally, number 10, the Guapos Project, G31.41 plus 0.31 unbiased ALMA spectral observational survey. Number 4, phosphorus-bearing molecules and their relation with shock tracers by Fontani et al. on the archive to appear in A and A. This study examines PO and PN in concert with other shock tracers such as SO, SO2, SIO, and SIS toward this hot molecular core using their observations that span the 84 to 116 GHz range. PN is detected, whereas PO is only tentatively detected. The PN emission appears to be highly correlated with that of SIO, and an analysis of the column densities of these species suggests a common origin likely through production in shocks. This is backed up by a lack of detection of PN in the nearby hot core that has no evidence of recent shocks. And that's your grab-and-go for the month. We can, of course, only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out, as usual, the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and the Astrochemical Newsletter. You can find links to those websites as well as each of the papers in this month's grab-and-go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. If you have a paper you think we should include in next month's edition, shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a four-to-six sentence summary at coffee at astrochem.net. And now, a word from our sponsors. From the depths of the universe in the esteemed labs of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Aromas. Eureka! I've discovered the perfect blend! Introducing the Galactic Espresso! A coffee so good, it's out of this world! Our espresso machines brew this blend with the steam power of a supernova and the care of a moon landing. Wow, it's like a caffeine comet just hit my taste buds. And I swear, each sip is like a journey through the Milky Way. Talk about a space odyssey in a cup. The Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Aromas, where coffee meets cosmos. Come taste the universe, sip the stars, and let your senses orbit around our cosmic collection.
All right, no double shot again this month, as our espresso machine is still down for maintenance while we sort out why every shot we make is mocha-flavored. I suspect Kevin tried to use hot cocoa mix instead of coffee again, but I can't prove it. I've got my eye on you, Kevin. You know what you did. Anyway, we've got another handcrafted single-origin brew for you this month instead. Out this month on the archive and appearing in ANA is a paper entitled The U-Mist Database for Astrochemistry 2022 by Tom Miller, Catherine Walsh, Marie Van de Sand, and Andrew Markwick. I sat down with Tom to chat about the paper and about his career in astrochemistry. Well, I say I sat down with him. It was over Zoom, but hey, we actually were both sitting on two different continents. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. Really fantastic to have you. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. So let's just dive right into it. Along with Catherine Walsh, Marie Van de Sand, and Andrew Markwick, you just released this major update to the UMIS database for astrochemistry. And as I understand it, the first version of this database actually came out in 1991. Um, can, can you tell us a bit about the history of UMIS? Who was involved in getting it kicked off? And, and what were the original goals of the project? Yeah, there were uh, four or five of us working at UMIS at the time in the astrophysics group, and uh, we were all modeling astrochemistry to some extent, but in different kinds of sources. So I've been modeling AGB stars and dense clouds. Steve Charney was there. He was interested in shockwaves, and uh, Jonathan Rawlings was working on novae and supernovae. And we were all working with slightly different chemical networks, and everybody was inventing the wheel again and again and again. So I, I, I had a conversation. We thought it would be worth just putting everything together into be one big network. Um, and, uh, and so that was fine. That worked. And we, we did our checking on it and everything was good. And then we had a discussion about what should we do with it? Should we release it to the public or not? And uh, uh, of course, we've, we all felt we have a competitive edge. And maybe we shouldn't, right? But then we had another thought and uh, we realized actually if we wanted astrochemistry to grow, we should release it and our codes to the public. And so sure. that's, that was the, the real motivation in the end behind it. So Fantastic. So, so you missed itself here it contains this treasure trove of interstellar chemical reactions and associated rate constants. So can you tell us just in general, why is this so important for us to have? What do these reactions and rates tell us and how are they used to advance astrochemistry as a field? I, I think one of the, I guess, the key tasks of, of astrochemistry is to help us interpret the vast amounts of molecular ion data that modern facilities are, are delivering to us. I mean, overwhelming amounts of, of, of data these days, of course. Um, Observational data, if you forget about chemistry, observational data tells us a lot about uh, physical conditions, you know, densities, temperatures, with the red excitation models and so on. There'd be some dynamics. Um, but a lot of the history of, of molecules and a lot of the possibilities of using molecules as a tool to probe physics of astrophysical regions is, is missing and is really dependent on astrochemistry to, to deliver that. So it allows us, I think, to say something about the history of objects. Where, where an object is in its, in its evolution. Um, it also tells us something about the future, perhaps, you know, where this object might, might uh, evolve to or how it might evolve. And it also, I think, helps us understand things that are essentially unobservable directly, you know, things like the electron fraction, the magnetic field, and, and mm. other things that are important in, in the evolution and star formation, galaxy formation, and, and so on. Sure, yeah, absolutely. 
So, so with this major new release, then how long has this been in the works? What motivated doing it now? Um, were there big, big open questions that that uh, that you thought could uh, be helped by by this this new influx of, of information, or right, why now, essentially? Why not? Well, it's, uh, it's of course time is is always an interesting thing to talk about. Uh, I had we had originally thought that every five or six years we would release uh, mm -hmm. a new, and we've kept very much to that that plan. So we did our last update in 2012, 13, and so okay. um, 2017, 18 would have been about the right time. Um, unfortunately, I was quite busy at at, at work in 2017, and um, I missed it. Um, uh, and then I applied for some funding to get a student to help with it, and that got turned down. Uh, then COVID struck. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, uh, and then um, in 2019, I, I signed a part-time contract with the university, which which meant I had to leave by July this year. Mm. And so that was really an end point for me, right? I, I'd started sure. this off 30 years ago, and I wanted to finish it. So it was a kind of a, a book-ending project uh, uh, for me. Um, and what happened really was it took much longer than I anticipated and grew much bigger than I thought. Uh, partly down to you, I have to say, Brett and Gotham <laughs> survey, and partly the, due to Pepe Chernacharo and his Quixote mm -hmm. surveys. Because every time I thought I'd finished, I'd wait another week, and and either one of you or both of you would would put out a new molecule uh, <laughs> of some ideas of chemistry. And I thought, oh goodness me, I'm going to have to update this, uh, and then you know, I'd be running models and looking at the influences and so on and checking data, and uh, sure. and it just kept growing. And, and finally, I think. Pepe certainly hasn't published a, a, a paper in recent weeks with new recent months with new molecules in it, and maybe you haven't too. Maybe you got some in the works. So I was so I was able to to to, to um, say that I wanted to finish it before I formally retired mm -hmm. and get her in, and I got a bit of funding from the Levy Hume Trust to to allow me to do that. And so, yeah, it's yeah, it's bookended my kind of career. Which went on a bit longer than ninety one or before ninety one, but but yeah, that was the real driver. I've got to do this before I lose lose the will to live. Almost, you know. So, oh so no! <laughs> but um, it was a huge uh, it was a huge effort. You know, I was always working. Sure. Every twenty minutes I'd spare, I'd be looking that up or searching out DOIs or reading papers and stuff. So oh, that was man. fun. But but um, I don't want to go through that again. Sure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So I mean, that, that's a great segue to, to asking I, you, as you said, you recently retired from your position as a professor at Queen's University, Belfast, right? So, so looking back, right, you said a little earlier than 1991, where this all started, yeah. how did you initially get involved in astrochemistry in the first place? How, how back, how far back does that interest in yeah. astrochemistry specifically go? 1973, so 50 mm. years ago. So I, I, I went to UMIST as an undergraduate to study mathematics. And uh, we had a very interesting mathematics department because the physics department uh, had decided it would only have two experimental groups. So the okay. mathematics department got a lot of theoretical physicists in. And one of those was David Williams. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and he had decided when he got his appointment that he would change fields from atomic and molecular physics to, to astrophysics, to astrochemistry. Okay. Alex Dalgarno and Sir David Bates were his PhD supervisors, and he thought mm -hmm. he could compete with them in atomic molecular physics. <laughs> so about the same time, Alex Dalgarno went off to Harvard uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and went into astrochemistry. Also so, into astrochemistry. Right. So this uh, this competitive edge uh, 
I was still there for David. But um, when I was finishing my maths degree, um, I'd done a lot of theoretical physics courses mm-hmm. during it. And I was kind of interested in one, staying in Manchester. I like being in Manchester a lot. And uh, and two, this just was you know, the time of the, you know, the moon landings and stuff. And uh, so I was getting kind of interested in, in astronomy anyway. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just an opportunity to try something new. If I liked it, I'd stick it out. If I didn't like it, I'd go and get a job. And yeah, I fell in love with it. Yeah, it looks like it looks like it worked out well for you. Yeah. So it, it, it's a big question, but now looking back since you got started in astrochemistry, then has anything really surprised you in the path that astrochemistry as a field has taken? You know, any big major discoveries you initially thought were impossible or something like that? Yeah, well, I think one one is the amount of data, uh, mm-hmm. the spectral resolution, the spatial resolution. You know, the images we're getting now with ALMA. JWST, of course, for the future. I mean, it's just uh, un- unthinkable when I was starting, right? It was just on, un- 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 we were using kind of bolometer receivers to you know, step across <laughs> the spectral line. It would take us months almost to get it, you know, a spe- Sure, sure. It was a slow, painful work. But I, I suppose if I look back, um, when I started, green surface chemistry was not even thought of. It had been thought of in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Ditched. It was only thought of because nobody knew anything about the gas phase, you know. <laughs> so it, the growth of it as a as a, a tool as an important mechanism in, in making molecules is mm-hmm. in something that's that's really uh, fifty years ago I wouldn't have thought. I think um, I, I think the chemistry of, of AGB stars, especially you know the carbon rich stars, mm. and something that that has just grown and the growth of molecules. I didn't believe we'd ever find ring molecules in space, right? So your group, of course. Sure been very important in looking at the, the, the CN additions to those molecules to make them observable. But C60, C70, you know, those those detections. Well, those are incredible. Yeah, they still blow my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there, there are other things. The use of deuterium, I think, as a as probe of dense regions um, in star formation. Again, it's just something that, you know, we never really thought of. Um, and again, it's been quite a, quite a surprise, I guess. Very interesting. <laughs> So speaking of deuterium, uh, uh, I've always wondered this. So, you know, when I teach my thermodynamics and kinetics class, I, I bring up the reaction of, of uh, H2D plus to insert deuterium into, into molecules in the interstellar medium. And I say, look, here's the, uh, the, the, the mean abundance of deuterium in the universe, you know, part in 10 to the 5 or something, mm-hmm. right? So uh, if you take that statistically, what should be the mean abundance of, of fully deuterated ammonia, ND3? right yeah. part in 10 to the 15 or something right totally yeah. makes sense and then i tell my students yeah but it's been detected at a ratio of one to one in some of these places uh or something very near to that right say so how is this possible and we and we use that to to drive home the importance of low temperature thermodynamics and kinetics and and these energetically favorable processes but i i you know i, I wasn't uh cognizant of um i, I I wasn't very active at the time uh, when those discoveries were first made. And so it still blows my mind that that ND2, uh, N, uh, ND2H, ND3, the, these highly deuterated ammonia molecules are out there at such abundance. But what was it like when it actually went, when the first results were announced? Was this something that the community expected or was this a, a, a really like mind blowing discovery, these sorts of enhancements? ND3 was a uh, mind blowing for me, right? Enhancement of 10 to the 12 or something in the first cloud it was detected in. I mean, it's just crazy, right? It's, right. Just, it's just crazy. Um, 
So uh, yes, of course, mind-blowing. I mean, we sort of thought a little bit, I'd, I'd written the papers with some students in the, in the early 90s, I guess, about multiple generating molecules. And we sort of mm -hmm. looked a bit about how you go down from uh, H2D plus to D3 plus. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Um, and what and what ratios you might get, but I'd never ever thought, yeah, we'd be detecting these huge enhancements in, in fully generated molecules. Just yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible, and and it's so cool that you you then it, it essentially gives you a window back in time, just like you were saying, right? Because it, the the enhancement is so determined, uh, so uh, uh, dependent upon the temperature at which the reaction occurred, right? Um, and so that gives you this this look back in the evolutionary history of the sources. It's, it's a time machine, which yeah. is which is really incredible. Yeah. Um, anyways, as an aside there, uh, so, so then looking forward here, right? Do you wanna make any bold predictions about the big breakthroughs that either you, you hope to see in the next few decades of astrochemistry or, or that you, you think might happen? I think, um... What I would hope to see would, I mean, there's a few things, of course, it's a big subject, right? So, so yeah. let, me, let me just <laughs> pick a, a few things out. I think um, I would certainly hope that we are, we'll have a better understanding of, uh, of the formation of PAHs and fullerenes mm -hmm. and their role in, in chemistry more, more generally. Uh, I think that's a, a very ripe area for, for investigation. Um, I think we, we will get um, although it may be slow progress, a, a more comprehensive and informed approach to how we deal with surface chemistry. Mm. I mean, there's lots of wonderful work going on. Uh, and I should say, you know, that I, I guess for the future, you know, the synergy we see these days between laboratory theoretical chemists, uh, observers, uh, theoreticians, modelers, hydrodynamicists, all those sorts of things are just going to grow. Um, it would be lovely to, to, at the end of that, have some well understood model of of green surface ice reactions. We may end up with everything being different, you know, um, and you know, getting together a, a really secure surface chemistry network may be quite a difficult, long task. But uh, but I think there's enough will and desire, and very interesting chemistry at, at low temperatures to be investigated by by lots of of, of people. So I do think that. That and as part of that process, I think we as astrochemists, astronomers more generally, really have to make sure that we uh, encourage the chemical community mm. uh, more generally to get involved in astrochemistry. It's a, a wonderfully rewarding field, um, and the chemists, of course, can play you know can play both sides of the coin. They they can publish in the astrophysical journals and they can publish in the chemical journals. Uh, and so they get, you know, two bangs for their buck in a, in a, in a sense. Um, but I think that's going to be, um, again, this, this, these collaborations are going to be re revolutionary. I suppose the final thing with all the, the wonderful detections of, of molecules in the last two to three years, uh, and we're seeing much more complexity, is I'd like to see astrochemistry getting to a place where it's more predictive rather than reactive. Mm. Yeah, we understand models and our sources well enough that we'll say this is a really good test of some process. And here's a molecule. Here's what we expect. Here's a, you know, the line transfer models. Here's our predicted intensities. Let's go and measure them and, and see what they tell us. Yeah, that would be fantastic. All right. So now that you're officially retired, got any big plans outside of astrochemistry research? Uh, with me? 
<laughs> no, so one of the yeah, of course, I've done this for so long that actually it's very difficult to give up. Sure. Uh, and uh, you know, so I've, I've ongoing collaborations and uh, things that I, I I still want to do in astrophysics. Um, so my my big plans are, are very mundane. Um, I've lived in a different country from my children and, and now my grandchildren for the last 18 years. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to move to England and be close to, to two of them and their families. Awesome. And um, spend a bit more time in Massachusetts with my my American son, as I, I like to call. Um, oh, very good. As well. So uh, so looking forward to, yeah, being a, being a grandparent before my kid, my grandchildren get so old that they only see me sitting in a corner in a rocking chair by the fire. <laughs> A bit more active part in their in their lives would be would be lovely. Sure, absolutely. All right, last question then. So, who's taking the the UMIS database reins now? Is it still going to be you, or you're handing off to somebody else? And along the same vein, if folks want to get involved or, or contribute to UMIS or have questions, who should they get in contact with? Well, I'm still in, still hoping to be active for a few more years and and look after yeah. it. I've I've decided a kind of change of, of of plan with it rather and really following the the example of Cloudy. Um, I'll I'll post updates every year. I just okay. couldn't that you know a big gap, um, but I'm I'm gathering data already for 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 a small release next or a small update next year. Um, so certainly anyone who's interested, just contact me. Um, Tom Dotmiller at qub.ac.uk will work for a while, and I'm hoping to pick up a link with uh, with maybe the University of Leeds once I move to to England, where I've also got collaborators in astrophysics and in chemistry. Yeah, so so I'm going to keep going for. As long as I can. So we'll see, see what happens. But at some point, I'd like to pass it on. I think I'd like to pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time and for joining us. Uh, and I uh, hope you, everything goes smoothly with the, with the move to uh, England. Okay. Thanks very much, Brett. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Bubbling up in the percolator this week is a collection of journal articles and newspaper clippings surrounding the decades-long journey of H3+, from the early recognition of its importance in ionized hydrogen gas to its eventual first discovery in interstellar space. Now, it seems that much of this started in 1958, when Stevenson and Schisler observed a very large cross-section for the reaction of H2+, with molecular hydrogen, to form H3+, and atomic hydrogen in the ion source of a mass spectrometer. Soon after that, in 1960, Rose suggested from ion mobility experiments that the dominant ion in ionized hydrogen should be either H2 plus or H3 plus, meaning that this reaction that Stevenson and Schisler had seen would be very important. However, Rose couldn't tell from the ion mobility experiments whether H2 plus or H3 plus was the dominant ion that they were seeing. That same year, though, Robert Varney reported that in ionized hydrogen, it really should be all H3+, not H2+, or even potentially a bare proton, due to that enormous cross-section for the reaction as measured by Stevenson. About a year later, in 1961, Barnes et al. used mass spectroscopic techniques to indeed show that H2 plus is extremely rapidly depleted and that the dominant ion in these ionized hydrogen gases is indeed H3 plus. Later that year, then, Martin, McDaniel, and Meeks suggested that this reaction, and thus H3 plus, may be present and important in the interstellar medium. So, a little more than a decade later, in a 1973 paper that now has more than a thousand citations, 
Eric Herbst and Bill Klemperer present a seminal paper on interstellar chemistry entitled The Formation and Depletion of Molecules in Dense Interstellar Clouds. In this paper, they propose that ion molecule chemistry is a titanic force in the evolution of chemistry in space. In particular, they suggest that H3 plus and its formation through this reaction of H2 plus plus molecular hydrogen may be a foundational mechanism underlying all of this ion molecule chemistry. And they invoke the ionization of hydrogen by cosmic rays as the critical preceding step. As reported in the Sunday, October 3rd, 1976 issue of the Newport News, Virginia Daily Press, A new study of the darker-than-dark regions of the universe has produced a model that may eventually help scientists to determine how the stars, the solar system, and even life originated. Eric Herbst, assistant professor of chemistry at the College of William and Mary, has collaborated with Harvard chemist William Klemperer, to formulate a detailed molecular model of the chemistry of interstellar clouds, the dark regions of the universe located between the stars. These clouds are tremendously big and also very diffuse, so molecular particles rarely collide. Yet, astronomers have found that molecular collisions do take place and chemical reactions do slowly occur. The reason? Highly energetic effects of cosmic rays. They provide the energy flux necessary for the continual synthesis of molecules in regions astronomers long thought were empty. It wasn't long after that that reports of H3 plus outside of Earth started to occur. In 1980, Hamilton et al. reported the detection of H3 plus in the atmosphere of Jupiter using the Voyager probes, and that same year, Takeshi Oka measured the infrared spectrum in the laboratory at the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics in Ottawa, enabling its search outside the solar system. And over the next 15 years, there were then several failed attempts to detect H3 plus in interstellar space, until finally, in 1996, Jabal and Oka used the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, it's UKIRT, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii to detect the signal of H3 plus in absorption toward GL2136 and W33A. The H3 plus molecule has finally been caught in the act, writes Stephen Miller in the Thursday, November 28, 1996 issue of The Guardian. When Joni Mitchell crooned the assembled masses of hippiedom at Woodstock that they were stardust, she little guessed she was touching on an issue that had been troubling astronomers for decades. You, me, the planet we live on, and the solar system we're part of, and the sun, and countless billions of stars like it, are all formed, one way or another, out of giant clouds of cosmic gas, which stretch for light years across the Milky Way. These clouds are mainly made from hydrogen molecules, but they also contain water, alcohol, long molecular chains of carbon, oxygen and nitrogen, amino acids, and maybe the football-shaped Buckminster Fullerene. So just how do these interstellar clouds produce the rich soup of dust and chemicals necessary for making stars, planets, and people in the first place? For the past 25 years, astronomers thought they knew the answer. Now, thanks to the discovery that one of the simplest molecules possible is lurking on the edges of two giant interstellar clouds, they know that they know the answer. Writing in today's Nature, astronomer Tom Jabal and spectroscopist Takeshi Oka announced that they have at last picked up the telltale spectrum of H3+, an electrically charged triangle of hydrogen atoms from deep within our galaxy close to the constellation of Sagittarius. And this molecule is the key 
to explaining how almost all others form. Left to its own devices, H3 plus is a very stable molecule. Put it with anything other than hydrogen, however, and H3 plus immediately sheds one of its own hydrogen nuclei, creating a new and potentially highly reactive ion, which adds more and more atoms to produce more complex molecules. It is that very reactivity which has made H3 plus such a chemical Cheshire cat. Theoreticians modeling interstellar chemistry needed H3 plus to make their models work. Unfortunately, it was reacting so quickly that for 15 years, no one could catch it in the act. The smile was there, but the cat had vanished. What Jabal and Oka have done is catch the cat by its tail, or rather by its paw. They pointed the four-meter collecting dish of the Yukert telescope in Hawaii at likely interstellar clouds, ones with a star conveniently located behind them. The infrared light from the star was filtered by the cloud, and in the resulting spectrum, two fingerprint lines of the H3 plus molecule were absorbed. The depth of the absorption showed that H3 plus was being made in just the amounts predicted by modelers. Given Eukert's sensitivity, the continuing failure of several groups to detect H3 plus was becoming embarrassing. Could the models all be wrong? Would astronomers have to look elsewhere to explain how we came into existence? It now appears no, and the sigh of relief is audible right around the world of astronomy. The article includes a charming cartoon of a young boy and his father. The father is proudly showing a diagram explaining that H3 plus leads to carbon, oxygen, and water, while the boy, with an expression resembling that of a soaking wet cat, thinks to himself, I wish I'd never asked Dad where I came from. The article concludes with the note, Stephen Miller is an astronomer and science communication lecturer at University College London. Together with colleagues, he has tried, but failed, to find H3 plus in interstellar gas clouds. Taking a look at the chalkboard this month, uh, oh, hey, somebody taped up a printout of that Guardian article on H3+, along with the comic. We'll just snap a photo of that and get it right up on the website. It'll be worth a read for you. Now, in other news, the Laboratory Astrophysics Division of the American Astronomical Society announced this month two of its annual awards. The LAD Early Career Award goes to Astrochemistry Discussion's very own Dr. Elsa Cook in recognition of her contributions to the discovery of new molecules in space and her work providing a detailed understanding of their reaction mechanisms, thermodynamics, and kinetics through elegant laboratory investigations. The LAD Laboratory Astrophysics Prize, the division's highest award, goes this year to Dr. Randall Smith in recognition of his contributions to the field of high-energy astrophysics. In employment news, there's an open PhD position at the Open University in the UK in the group of Helen Fraser. It's entitled Untangling Ice, Dust, and Gas Astrochemistry with JWST Ice Mapping. The position is for a start in October of 2024, and the deadline for applications appears to be January 25th. The Star and Planet Formation Laboratory at Recon still has an opening for a research scientist at the assistant or associate professor level, specifically targeting astrochemical research. The application deadline is December 8th, which may be quite soon, depending on when this episode drops. In terms of conferences, we've got a new one that just came to our attention entitled Raising the Veil on Star Formation Near and Far, being held in honor of Richard Hills. 
It will be in person April 22 to 26, 2024 at the Kavli Institute for Cosmology in Cambridge. In-person participation will be limited to 100 people with a registration fee of 200 pounds, but remote participation is going to be available with no fee. Topics will include star formation in our galaxy from the ISM via pre-stellar cores, astrochemistry and star formation tracers, star formation in nearby galaxies, primeval galaxies and cosmic evolution, and prospects from future facilities. It looks like abstract submissions closed 30th of November, but registration is available until the 31st of January. Also new on our radar is the promises and challenges of the Alma Wideband Sensitivity Upgrade to be held June 24th to the 28th, 2024 at ESO in Garching, Germany. The WSU will make enormous advances in the capabilities of ALMA for broadband spectral line observations and is particularly impactful for astrochemistry. The abstract deadline will be the 1st of March of next year, with registration by the 1st of May. In-person attendance is strongly encouraged, but remote participation will be possible. As well, we'll remind you again that registration for the 2024 Laboratory Astrophysics Workshop held from February 19th to the 24th in Kauai, Hawaii, is still open, although late registration was slated to start at the beginning of last month. The Quantum Grain Workshop, Emerging Horizons in the Chemistry of the Universe, was also recently announced and will convene in Barcelona June 9th to the 12th, 2024, so save the date on that one. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings and job opportunities from today's episode on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. And if you have ideas for the grab-and-go or double-shot or single-origin brew, general thoughts or comments, please do get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. The format of the podcast is evolving every month, and it's doing so based pretty much exclusively on the feedback that we get from our listeners. Special thanks today to Camille Lipnicki and Andy Lipnicki for their excellent sponsor ad break. An ad copy for our sponsor breaks were, as usual, generated with the assistance and inspiration from ChatGPT. Until next time, stay safe and keep your head in the molecular clouds.